Hi, this is Wayne Zell, and welcome to Blueprint for Wealth, your fast-paced video cast, hopefully designed to help you realize your personal dreams of wealth and freedom, and featuring special guests and special topics on every broadcast. This week, we have our special guest, John Shames, who has, he emphasizes, retired from his long-term career at Ernst & Young. Welcome, John. Hey, thank you. Appreciate it, Wayne. Welcome to, welcome to the show. I know that... Uh, you know, being retired is not something I'll ever understand or uh, be able to identify with, but we're going to learn a little bit more about that uh, today. But I think um, before we get to that, let me uh, give a little background on John and his background. And, and I do want to talk about some of the expertise that he developed when he was a partner at Ernst & Young. He spent 38 years there after graduating from Colgate and then the New York University Stern School of Business. He spent his whole career there, which in my mind is amazing. I've never actually come across anybody uh, except in the old days who spent you know their entire career at a firm. And I have to applaud you for that because that in and of itself is amazing. Um, what was it about Ernst & Young that allowed you or made you want to stay there for as long as you did? Well, and by the way, I also want to point out that I have a pension. So talk about old school. That's about as old school as you can get. Uh, who, who has Got a it. pension today? Um, right. You know, you can guess that, you know, when you start out, I don't think you ever think that you're going to be there your, your entire career. And, um, you know, to me, it's a year by year decision. And I would, you know, I want to say that before I was a partner, you know, clearly, you know, every year you'd go through, I was an auditor. So I'd go through a busy season and you were so wiped out, tired at the end that it really was healthy to go through a process of saying, maybe I should leave. Maybe I should do something else. Right. But, you know, I stayed because, number one, the 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 challenge that I went through, the the amount of learning that I got, the amount of mentorship that I received. You know, this is a EY and accounting firms in particular are apprenticeship models. And I always had someone above me, a partner or maybe not a partner, who mentored me and took care of me and, and, and made me feel good. And so even though I got very close at times to leaving, um, there was always something holding me back. And I love the intellectual challenge. And of course, when I became a partner, uh, it changed quite a bit. I didn't think about it as much as leaving. and I didn't think about it at all. But I did challenge what I did every year. And I feel like one of the reasons I stayed was I always got to do different things. And so I had not one career, but I probably had three careers. I was an audit partner. Uh, I was an auditor for a while, then a partner. And then I, you know, I was in New York at the time. I moved down to the, our McLean office and became a technology partner where I worked with tech firms and startups. And, and Wayne, that's how you and I got to know each other. Right. Um, and, and then... In 2007, the firm asked me to move back to New York, which I told them that I would commute. Um, and so for the last 12 or 13 years of my career, I worked in our private equity practice. And so in my mind, I had three careers. And so it didn't feel like any one of them was long or I got bored in any way. Well, that's, you know, that that's good. So you really had three careers, but within one firm, yeah. which, again, the firm's big enough to allow that to happen. Um, I spent a good portion of my career in the big eight, uh, starting with, you know, one firm that became defunct and is now back in business again. But uh, it's interesting, you know, to to watch over the period of time, 
that both of us have been practicing as professionals, how things have changed. One of my questions, I guess, relates to for aspiring young auditors and accountants who are at Ernst & Young or Deloitte or you know PwC or KPMG or any of the other firms, what is the path to partnership today? It's a, I, I would imagine it's totally different. Well, I think it really depends on what uh, what service line you're in. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I have a niece who is at Deloitte and she's on the audit side. And, uh, you know, I think uh, these young people struggle with these same issues, especially during this whole period of the great resignation. They're getting offers. They're they're working hard because there's so many people are leaving. Right. Um, but I think the career path is still very much the same. Uh, you know, it's depends on how many years uh, what group you're in, but, you know, it can be, you know, between 13 and 15 years and, um, and the, uh, and, you know, you're, you're going through a variety of different clients and responsibilities. And with that, um, you're getting a chance to go through the levels. And, you know, I think that the best part about these firms is that they give you the challenges that you want. And, and, and if you take them, you can move very fast through the ranks uh, but partnership, you know, those these firms are still making partners every year in significant numbers. And, and to me, what I've always counseled my niece is if you're enjoying what you're doing, don't get kind of uh, lost in all the craziness going on and people leaving. Do what you enjoy. And if you're enjoying it and they're paying you decently and you're being challenged, don't think about leaving so much. The You know, to me, the the benefit is that the longer you stay, the better you're going to do. And the longer you stay, the better the opportunities are going to be outside. And so if you want to become CFO, your chance of becoming a CFO would be much higher if you stay as to a senior manager, let's say, right. versus if you left as a senior. Right. The, uh, the transition from auditing or assurance into private equity, how did that transpire? And was it because you were auditing a lot of private equity firms at the time? Yeah, I, I would say... Um, you know, I was an audit partner. Uh, you know, the firm historically was significantly made up of audit, but that's changed a lot. And right. so, you know, since 2002, when, you know, during the Enron days and obviously the Anderson um, firm uh, going out of business at the time, uh, we picked up a lot of Anderson people, uh, uh, especially in the in the D.C. market. Right. And um, and. and but there was a lot more opportunities because there's only four firms for you to do non-audit work. And so I started doing more non-audit work, but, but frankly, I was an audit partner all the way until the firm asked me to go in private equity. The private equity focus was a new initiative on the behalf of the firm. It was focused initially on the transaction side of the house, okay. but they really, they realized they needed more people who were much bigger in terms of just relationships, had the audit background, could work in the portfolio, more than maybe just the fund level where you were doing transaction work. So I was identified as someone, I did a lot of venture capital work. And so that might've been one of the reasons, but I, I think it was actually, I was just a good relationship person. And that's what I spent a lot of time focusing on and what I enjoyed. And so the chance to go in and to work in a large private equity fund and, and really make a difference in terms of bringing the EY services, not just nationally, but globally was really uh, compelling to me. Did you have an opportunity to, I mean, basically, were you working with the the uh, fund managers to provide services to portfolio companies? Is that essentially what you were doing? 
Yeah, I would say it, it, it's really what we called it was the enterprise approach. Okay, is when you think about a PE fund, there's fun work that you know that that uh, you know accounting firms can do. Um, it could be audit, could be tax, it could be consulting. Right. But then there's transaction work uh, at the fund level, and then the third bucket is everything at the portfolio level. And in some of these funds, you know that that amount is significant. I mean, right. some of these funds have hundreds of portfolio companies, especially today. And so the need for someone who could focus on all four of our service lines at the portfolio level, while at the same time, uh, you know, working at the fund level, uh, you know, was was kind of the goal in the mind of our, of our of our practice. Were you able to expand that practice under your tenure since you were there at the inception? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I wasn't there exactly at the inception because it was happening before that. But yes, I mean, if you look at private equity today, it is one of our largest sectors. Um, it wasn't even considered a sector in 2007 when I went into that practice. I, I was one of many people, uh, you know, who got involved. I was the America's private equity leader for a while, but ultimately I was, you know, relationship partner for a number of PE funds, and all of those we expanded significantly, um, you know, for a lot of reasons. One of them being that if you look at their assets under management, where they were in 2007 and where they were today. You know, one of my clients was a hundred billion dollars in 2007. Today, it's four hundred and fifty million dollars. Wow! And with that in mind, I mean, a lot of money has flowed into the private equity funds simply because they offer better returns on investment than the general stock market. And with the stock market struggling today, one of my questions to you was, what is happening in the private equity market today? What are you observing? And uh, do you think this is going to continue? I mean, what I, as an aside, what I'm seeing on, on a much smaller level is the private equity funds that are uh, handling merger and acquisition uh, transactions are throwing money at a lot of uh, companies, pr providing them with great pricing and great value. Are you, are you confident that that is going to continue? And, um, and what are you seeing in the market today? Well, a couple of things, you know, so I started within our private equity practice in 2007. Okay. Not great timing. That was right, you know, at the beginning of the great recession. Right. And I want to think, I think that the PE firms really learned some lessons there. The second thing to mention is that these PE firms, you have to look at where they're focused. Okay. In 2007, they were focused mostly on equity, private equity. Okay. You know, that, that name is, is a misnomer now. They're really diversified global alternative asset managers. And so now they're in every single, you name the investing source, they're in it, okay? Infrastructure, credit, you know, private credit, public credit, distressed debt, um, you know, the, real estate, energy, they're in every aspect. And so I, I am a big fan of private equity. I think the ability to be less than a passive uh, investor and be able to um, be able to bring operational board um, relationship expertise to the table, I think is unparalleled. And, and I, I think second, they can pick and choose where they're going to invest, what geographies they're going to invest, right. what, um, you know, what, what sectors they're going to invest in, as well as what, you know, their own service lines. So, you know, they can look at it and say, look, we're going to go big in the U.S. and in infrastructure. You know, that's what we're going to focus on now. They're able to do that. They don't have to put the money in right away. Right. And so their ability to do those things, I think, is very compelling. And it's one reason, you know, I, I'm an investor right now in those funds for that reason. I, I just find it to be 
uh, a way to stay away from kind of the month to month ups and downs in the market. And of course, lately it's been down. Do you believe that private equity should be open to all investors? You know, non-accredited? Well, I, you know, yeah. Uh, well, I don't, I don't know if I have a point of view there. Yeah. I mean, clearly, if you look at the, the, the changes, again, let's just go back to 2007. I don't think there was much opportunity for retail investors like myself Correct. to get into private equity. It was pension funds. It was governments. It was, you know, multi-billionaires, you know, multi-millionaires. Yeah. Maybe it was high net worth investors. Right. Today, that's changed a lot. And so I, I have the ability to invest in, you know, a lot of different funds that I didn't have the chance in, you know, 15 years ago. And so I do think it's changed. I don't know. I, I mean, you know, these are long-term investments. And so I understand, you know, why you'd want maybe to have at least some level of accredited investor to be involved here. Um, but I, I do think that over time, we're seeing it open up more and more to uh, to retail investors like myself. The private equity investment uh, population has grown radically as well. I mean, there's a lot of funds that have been set up. And like you said, they're investing in everything today. Um, everything from government contractors to technology to solar energy. I mean, you name it, you, you see the private equity stamp on it. Um, is it causing valuations to go up or will valuations, in your opinion, settle down a little bit because of the market volatility and the economy in general? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the last, especially, say, five years, I mean, valuations have continued to increase. And you know, it's really a, a matter of supply and demand. The the, uh, the supply of money um, that's out there is significant. And so these funds do have a limited shelf life in terms of their fund periods. And so they do have to invest the money. Um, they can time it in some ways. But, you know, many of these funds have a very specific formula. You know, we're going to invest a billion dollars this year and next year and next year and whatever that might be. Right. And, and some of those multiples are much bigger. So I, I do think that um, that's driven valuations higher. There's also been an increase in the number of PE funds. The number of uh, PE funds that have been uh, that have have come about in the last couple of years from people who were my clients, for example, and left that fund to start a new fund right. um, are significant. And, and so I, I do think that you're going. I mean, with what's happening today in the market, it's going to result in some level of reset. But I'm not so sure it's going to result in, you know, a crash or anything significantly. I think it's based on the type of business that you're talking about, the type of sector you're in. Um, I think some of those will continue to do well um, and those valuations will continue to increase. Um, but I think ultimately, you know, the, the maybe the era of free money of, of zero interest rates are over. Yes. And so that will potentially drive down some of the yields. Uh, it's hard to tell, but I, I'm not expecting a major shakeup in PE, like say there was in venture capital in the in the in the late 2000s. It's funny because uh, I, I was doing some analysis for a client the other day, and uh, the the interest rates, the federal interest rates that we use to do some of our planning, uh, were like four percent in 2008. In 2011, it was 1.4 percent, and in 2020, 2019, it was below one percent on short-term debt. And now the the long term debt uh, you know benchmark has has almost it's more than doubled in the last year. It's back over three point six percent. So it's it's interesting to see what's happening in the marketplace. And and obviously, I think interest rates will drive behavior uh, and valuations going forward. And the private equity firms are not stupid. They're they're going to make good decisions based on economic 
best economic judgment. So with that said, I'll move on to my next question to you. And that is you're retired. You worked for 38 years. You spent time away from your family and now you're in post-retirement. And as, as I've mentioned on other uh, podcasts, videocasts, I'm writing this book on business succession planning, but I'm in the section that talks about post-retirement. And I've really wanted to ask you about your post-retirement plans. What does retirement mean to you as one who worked for a firm for 38 years, invested all that time? And where do you see yourself going? Because you're still a young man. You've got a long, you know, long uh, life ahead of you. You could do a lot of different things. What are you going to do in your retirement? Yeah, so you know, I, I would say that because of how EY works, which is as a partner, you have to leave at sixty. Um, I I had a lot of time to think about this, and I probably started thinking about it at fifty uh, because I knew that you know ten years of you know down the road I was going to be retired, um, and, and so uh, even more importantly, the firm gave me a lot of resources to use. Um, you know, two, three years beforehand, there were, you know, there were, there were classes, there was a conference, you know, I had a coach. And so I really spent a lot of time thinking about what I wanted to do. And, and for me, you know, I, I didn't want, I wanted to retire. Uh, I don't want a full-time job, but I wanted to do a lot of different things. And it wasn't going to be one item. It wasn't going to be, I'm going to work for this one company for even a part-time basis. I wanted to do a little here and a little there. Um, ideally, I really wanted to sit on some boards. Um, that's been a little harder uh, than I wanted it to be. Uh, and, um, and so I'm on some boards, but, you know, it's probably an area I, I'd love to do more of going forward. But, you know, I spent a lot of time, you know, two years before I retired, starting to network, to, to reach out to friends and others who I hadn't talked to in a while, including those who I did work with. To get a sense, you know, I spoke to a lot of retirees. Mm -hmm to get a sense of what they were doing, both, you know, with, you know, from EY as well as outside of EY. And, um, and in my mind, I really wanted to kind of do a portfolio of, you know, just like my private equity clients have a portfolio, I wanted a portfolio. And, you know, I wanted to spend five hours a month here and 10 hours a month there. And what I targeted was about a third of my time, a quarter to a third of my time, doing a number of different things, you know, that would be considered work in okay. some ways. And, and some of it was giving back to the community. And so, for example, um, I'm on the audit committee of our local school board, which is one of the largest in the countries, uh, country. Um, you know, I'm on the finance committee of my synagogue. Uh, I'm on the uh, I'm the treasurer of my country club. And so, some of these things, I'm a poll a poll worker. I, I've been doing a lot of the uh, you know election. I'm an election sure. official. You know, at the polls. You know, every six months. So I, I've done a bunch of these things um, and I've really enjoyed all of those. And then there's some what I'll call more work. And so, you know, I'm on the board of advisors of a, of a small company, a technology company. Um, I'm the biggest role I play is I'm a senior advisor to Morgan Franklin Consulting. Um, and that's something that I, you know, love to be affiliated with a, a firm of that stature. Um, and I really enjoyed the ability to bring my professional services expertise to the table. But even that's on a, on a part-time basis. And so I've kind of really put together a number of things. My guess is it'll change from year to year. Uh, I'm on some you know not-for-profit boards on top of mm -hmm. everything else. Um, but I've really enjoyed every piece of it. But it really is about changing around the mindset that when I get up in the morning, I don't have 
for the most part, clients or uh, work or meetings that I have to go to. It really is about the things that I want to do. And those things include, you know, what I would call work. Uh, and I've enjoyed that, that balance and mix. And having said that, I always find myself still too busy. Um, and that's something I'll have to deal well, with. That's over time. the nature of the workaholic a partner in a public <laughs> accounting firm, you can't avoid that. You, you know, but, but what I hear is it's very interesting on a post-retirement basis, you still have allocated about a third of your time to try to keep busy with business, a third of your time with volunteering, which it may be more than a third of your time based on what I'm hearing, uh, particularly given the organizations that you're involved with. And then a third of your time enjoying yourself with family, friends, traveling, doing good stuff uh, to reinvigorate your life. And that's a great, that's a great uh, menu. Yeah. And look, I, it'll, my guesses will change over time. I mean, uh, I, I tend to, you know, I do a lot of physical activities and so, you know, I'm playing more golf and tennis. Uh, I also, as I get older, you're going to the doctor more. <laughs> and so you make a, I make a priority on my physical sure. well-being. Um, and then I, you know, I'm trying to do different things. I'm learning Spanish right now. Um, I am, uh, you know, I'm learning more history. I really enjoyed learning about the history of DC actually. Um, and things like the civil war that I really, I live in Virginia, but have never really spent a lot of time at the civil war battle sites. So I'm looking forward to doing more of that. So I've had a, a number of different hobbies, all doing different things. And I love that mix. And each day is very Anytime you me. want to go to a Civil War battlefield, I'll join you. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a passionate okay. uh, fan of that since I was a little kid. And I was lucky to have grown up in this area. So I've visited all of them. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. Well, we've been talking with John Shames. And I, I, you know, from the beginning of his career to now, not the end of his career. He's got, he's doing stuff in retirement. And that's the lesson to learn is you can plan for your retirement. You don't just stop doing stuff. Right. And that I think is beautiful. Thank you for being a special guest on blueprint for wealth. I really appreciate it. Well, Wayne, I enjoyed the conversation and uh, I hope uh, people listen oh, they to will. get something don't, out of it. Don't worry about that. And next time, uh, there will be another special guest, but stay tuned for a special topic right after this. There'll be some information about private equity. Hi, this is Wayne Zell, and welcome to this educational moment on Blueprint for Wealth, your video blog that helps you realize your personal dreams of wealth and freedom, brought to you by Zell Law, an estate and business planning firm located in Reston, Virginia, serving clients all across the country. Today, we're going to talk about post-retirement planning, which is part of my book, Your Multi-Million Dollar Exit, scheduled for launch in early 2023. It's the Entrepreneur's Business Succession Planner, and I'm very excited to tell you about it. And I'm going to read you an excerpt from the book and sort of give you uh, an outline of some of the items in the book, at least on this topic, post-retirement planning. You obviously understand the meaning of hard work to have gotten where you are in your life. You've devoted countless hours, days, months, and years pursuing your entrepreneurial dreams. Once you take the off-ramp from the entrepreneurial highway, what will be your next exit? Will you drive back onto the fast-paced entrepreneurial highway to pursue yet another exit? Or will you take a different path to pursue your goals? 
What other passions do you want to pursue? What dreams do you still have that you haven't fulfilled? What is your ultimate purpose? Once you've figured out your ultimate purpose, you can identify your core values. But before we get there, we need to really dig into what a purpose is, your lifetime purpose is. If you've got an insatiable desire for learning and knowledge like I do, you may take online or in-person courses in cooking, history, math, science, art, music, etc. Perhaps you can teach a class and impart your wisdom to a younger generation of entrepreneurs. Giving back is an also a major component of many people's lives, and it makes me think of former NFL and University of Virginia football star Chris Long who in May 19, 2015, he launched the Chris Long Foundation, which helps raise money for waterboys.org initiative, an effort dedicated to building wells for communities in East Africa. What better way to give back? Here's some more questions to ponder as you define your personal purpose going forward. What would you like to accomplish in the next year, the next three years, or over the next decade? What parts of your life today give you incredible pleasure and enjoyment? What and whom are you grateful for? What are your most important values? What aspects of your life give you the greatest pleasure? Now make a list of answers to all of these questions and start prioritizing what is most important to you in these categories. And then let's make a plan. What's your vision? What are your core values that dictate what your vision is? And then set goals and a strategic plan. As I mentioned, your purpose may be focused on your family or charity, on starting a new business or helping another person start a new business, on mentoring and teaching others, on learning or just having fun like playing golf or pickleball. The values that you really stand for are one of many different types of values. And you have to brainstorm what your values are, prioritize them, narrow them down, and focus on your top values. Mine starts with gratitude, but yours may be very different. And then Create a vision from your values. What is your vision? Just as you must create a clear vision for your business, you need a vision for your life after entrepreneurship. To create that vision, you must first identify your values, which originate from your purpose. Your core values consist of a small set of vital and timeless guiding principles for the way you live your life. They may be very different or quite like your business's values. Narrow down your values list from your top 15 to your top 10 and your top five and then your top three. And then create a vision from those values, which is aligned with your life purpose. What do you see yourself doing in the future? Project yourself into the future. And then create smart goals, specific, measurable, achievable relevant and time-based goals that might be focused on any number of categories. For example, if you were focused on physical health, 
you might set a goal of losing 20 pounds or reducing your body mass index below 20 in six months. Drink no more than one to five glasses of wine per week or eat only healthy foods and decrease sugar and carbohydrates. For financial health, you may continue working or volunteering part-time, 10 to 20 hours a week or doing something you're passionate about, meeting with your financial advisor or becoming one yourself. Learning and teaching, you may become an expert chef or sommelier in a year, teaching at the local high school or university in your area of expertise, learning how to play guitar or piano or another musical instrument, teaching in your religious school, getting an advanced degree in mathematics or even philosophy, learning to speak a new language. All of these are smart goals. And then develop a strategic plan. First, Try to figure out where you want to be three to five years out. Then create a plan that you might try to achieve your goals on an annual basis. Chunk it down to quarterly, monthly, and weekly components. And then you have a strategic plan. This is all in your multi-million dollar exit. The Entrepreneur's Business Succession Planner due out in early 2023. Stay tuned for a pre-order. And thanks for listening to Blueprint for Wealth.